We always have so many things to tell our audience about here at Intelligence Squared, so when I'm needing a top-down view of it all, I don't want to feel like I'm looking at organised chaos. That's why I really love Notion, which lays out different threads of work in a beautifully designed layout, and despite all of its clever AI tech going on in the background, it feels as clear and easy as putting pen to paper. Remember that? But with Notion, you can do a lot more than jot down a few thoughts. Notion is a place where any team can write, plan, organize, and rediscover the joy of play. And thanks to its AI-powered model, the way it works is so intuitive, every question has an answer. I still love my paper notebook, but sitting next to Notion, it might need to up its game a little bit. Try Notion for free and up your game too when you go to notion.com slash squared. That's all lowercase letters, notion.com slash squared, lowercase. So you can start turning ideas into action. And when you use the link, you're supporting a Intelligence Squared 2. That's Notion.com slash squared. Welcome to Intelligence Squared. I'm senior producer Connor Boyle. On today's podcast, Trash Talk, Oliver Franklin Wallace, the award-winning journalist, discusses his book Wasteland, an investigation of the dirty truth behind what we do with all our waste, where it goes and why we should care about it. Talking with Oliver is Dr. Gunesh Taylor, a science communicator and postdoctoral fellow at the Francis Crick Institute. If you'd like to hear this episode ad-free and enjoy a full-length version, you can support our mission to foster honest debate and compelling conversation by heading over to intelligencesquared.com slash membership or by subscribing to our channel via the Apple Podcast app for just $4.99 a month. Now let's join Ganesh with more. Hi, it's an absolute pleasure and delight to introduce our guest for today, Oliver Franklin Wallace. Oliver is a magazine journalist whose writing has appeared in GQ, Wired, The Guardian, The New York Times, The Sunday Times magazines. I would keep going, but I think he might get a bit embarrassed. So let's just suffice to say lots of places. He's actually currently the features editor at British GQ and his new book, which we'll be discussing the themes of today is Wasteland, the dirty truth about what we throw away, where it goes and why it matters. With no further ado, I think the first question really has to be in these circumstances. Why did you write this book? How did that come about? It's funny when you write a book like this, so many people ask you, oh, what are you writing a book about? And you say, I'm writing a book about rubbish. And you get a very interesting range of facial expressions by way of, <laughs> of answer. But um, yeah, the, the story uh, started, I did a piece for The Guardian many years ago now, in 2019, because uh, what had happened at the time is uh, China, which for many decades was the kind of central destination for a lot of the world's rubbish, had shut its doors to the international uh, kind of exports of waste, particularly plastic. Mm. And I wrote a piece about this for The Guardian. And uh, on my reporting there, I, I met a guy who worked in the waste trade, and he said something like, uh, one day everything you own is going to belong to me. And I've never had a light bulb kind of moment before that's in my life that was so powerful because, you know, it, it really does hit you when you go to some of these places that we spend so much of our life thinking about where our things come from. You know, is it organic? Is it fair trade? Is it this or is it that? But we never really think about where it goes afterwards. Yet that that's half the journey. You know, we, we are the center point and there is this massive side of the global economy that is very rarely interrogated. We don't see much of it. We don't think about it. It's you know it's out of sight, out of mind. And because we've seen it as out of sight and out of mind over the last couple of decades, uh, we've seen things like suddenly the rivers are full of sewage 
and the things that we thought were being recycled are not being recycled. They've been dumped in the global south. And so the more I kind of dug into this subject, the more I became kind of fascinated by it in understanding, well, we say we throw things away. Well, where is it away exactly? It's a place and it's the people who deal with it. And so this book is the kind of the story of me trying to get to grips with some of them. I think you've or obviously touched on a lot of the themes that you touched upon in the book as well. But I wonder if we could almost address the end point almost for you as well. Like now that you've finished writing the book and it's and it's out there, how do you feel about waste? Like do you do you feel like you did that? That you went through the full journey? Do you feel like you got an overview of where things go and do they go anywhere? Something happened to me which I was reassured talking to a lot of people. I mean, I spoke to hundreds of people in the course of reporting this book, both people who work in waste, but also academics and people in, across various industries. And, and something happened to me, which seems to happen to a lot of people, which is when you become aware of the things we throw away, you start to kind of see it everywhere. It's like, it's like this, mm. uh, the, the moment is the red pill, blue pill moment or whatever you want to call it. Uh, and all of a sudden you become hyper aware of it. And so when I tell people this, the stories that from, from the book, they start to have this experience too. And now I kind of, people send genuinely send me pictures of things in their recycling, which is an un, unexpected <laughs> side effect. But yeah, I mean, so I, I, I did everything from kind of follow our recycling to plants in the UK to talk to people who export it around the world. I went to India and climbed up a 65 meter tall landfill that's the size of a couple of thousand football fields. Uh, uh, going all the way to down sewers, and I think the, the last uh, chapter is nuclear waste, uh, which will still be around many, many uh, millennia after I'm gone. Uh, and I think one of the a couple of the couple of things that really stood out for me is the first is that waste is a, a massive problem. There's two billion tons of it produced every year. There's another 1.3 billion tons going to be produced by 2050. And yet, two billion people in the world uh, don't have any kind of formal waste collection. And the result of that is the, the gigantic landfills that you see all across the global south, which I write about, and the gigantic gyres of plastic and other waste that are in the ocean. Uh, it can seem a little esoteric, but the way that I like to frame it to people is, well, this is the physical stuff. It's the physical pollution. If you can't deal with the tangible, like physical waste in our world. Like, what chance do we really have to do with climate change, which is, uh, you know, this gigantic invisible issue? And, you know, so, so for example, solid waste, food waste alone is 10% of all global uh, greenhouse gas emissions, according to the IPCC. So, waste is also a gigantic climate issue. And once you start to frame that people and seeing, okay, well, this is a really pressing issue that has big consequences all over the world and not just in the global south, then people really start to open their eyes and, and engage with it in a meaningful way. So I hope the book can be part. Yeah, and no, I, I think definitely I, I had that feeling as well. Like having read, read it now, I'm definitely looking around a lot more and seeing and thinking about this stuff a lot more. And I'm sure that, you know, our listeners today will have a very similar experience as well, like pretty early on. So the book is obviously divided into these three sort of broad sections, dirt, foul, and toxic. And, um, you know, you start with these really vivid descriptions of landfill sites in, in, you know, outside, I think it was New Delhi, wasn't it? That's right. Um, and just almost 
speechless, basically, just trying to imagine being in that circumstance. Um, and I think that, yeah, it's a, it's a great and powerful way of getting people to really engage with it. And he mentioned it already, but I think the out of sight, out of mind thing is something that I'd really like to start with. So could you speak to a little bit, um, how it is that our current societies ensure that waste is out of sight and out of mind. Um, and, and the, the unfairness of the fact that it's only out of sight and out of mind for us, right? It's not out of sight or out of mind when you're living next to Mount Everest of trash, is it? That's quite right. And I, I think, you know, I write about this, um, early on, but when I went to, I went to a big, uh, materials recovery facility. Uh, and now when you, when you throw away your recycling bin on the weekend or whenever it is your bins come, the first place that your recycling goes is to a big, uh, uh, uh materials recovery facility. They're called MRFs in the trade. And what they are essentially are these kind of giant warehouses full of people and s- conveyor belts and sorting lines. And their job is to take away out the plastic and the glass and all that separate all the different materials before sending them on their way to their end destination. And they are grotesque, kind of fascinating places because you basically, you can see how much we're all buying and consuming and throwing away. And it's a very visceral experience. But I remember going to this, the first time I went to one of these facilities, and I've been to a few now, they have these giant metal screens on the outside, so you can't see in. They also have this thing called an odorizer, which is essentially a gigantic machine which pumps out the smell of cotton bed sheets in order to mask the smell of it. Because and it, you know it's tucked away on an industrial estate, but even then, you know, it's such a kind of grotesque thing that they kind of go through all this rigmarole of hiding it from people. And you know, the trucks come first in the morning and or in the middle of the night, and and we've just kind of put all these systems in place to hide our waste infrastructure away from people, right? So you end up with this situation where you put something in the bin. You Most people don't know that it might end up in Malaysia or in a plastics recycling facility in Turkey. Most people have absolutely no idea that when you go to a charity shop, which, by the way, are part of the waste infrastructure, you know, it's controversial sometimes to say that some of, and in many cases, the majority of what we donate does not get resold in that charity shop or even a charity shop in the UK, but it's bundled and sold on via networks of traders to the global south, which is how you know we ended up with. I went to Ghana, and in Accra, and Accra, the capital of Ghana, there are massive landfills full of old H and M and supermarket clothing that from the UK and other countries that have been donated to charity shops. And so you have you know for the people in the global south that are dealing with our exports, they also take a lot of our, our electronics, for example. They are often living with the consequences of things we are buying in a way that is inescapable because they don't have the odorizing machines and these advanced facilities. A lot of the cases you're dealing with very rudimentary uh, dumps in Accra. They actually uh, had a sanitary landfill that was paid for with a loan by the World Bank, and it became so flooded with Western fashion waste and caught on fire that they had to seal the landfill. Uh, and so the people of Ghana are still paying off a loan from the World Bank uh, for dealing with our fashion waste that we threw <laughs> that we threw away and was shipped to Ghana. So, and it's so it is it's a really visceral problem when you actually look at it. And a big part of what I want to try and do with this book and and 
talking to people like today is to try and convince them to look at it because uh, not only is it very important, it's also quite fascinating. And I think there's uh, a lot for us to kind of talk about in changing the ways that we make things and dispose of things and ultimately the way that we all kind of operate. Sponsoring the show for this episode is Marquee TV. Marquee TV is a streaming service with a difference. It's bringing you the top tier of performing arts straight into your living room or onto your device. So think dance, theatre, music, anything you might find in the West End, Broadway, or maybe a cool little experimental space too, but saving you the cost of a few tickets as well. I've got happily a bit lost in their vast library of performances, exclusive interviews, and behind-the-scenes content. Choreographer Jonathan Watkins' interpretation of George Orwell's classic 1984 was pretty cool, and I love the dance piece, Sutra, inspired by the skills of Buddhist Shaolin monks. And we've got a special treat for our listeners. Marquee TV offers three months of access for just 99 cents. That's right, three months for only 99 cents. With the code SQUARED, simply visit marquee.tv and use the promo code SQUARED to dive into the world of arts like never before. Bring the arts home with Marquee TV. The events calendar is filling up here at Intelligence Squared, and to create each one, we obviously rely on some brilliant guests and onstage talent. But behind the scenes, there's also a producer, a production team, and the budget in the mix too. You've got to keep an eye on all of that stuff in one place. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, and HR into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. And you can cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because it's super easy to get started. NetSuite exists in the cloud, you see. No hardware needed. So you're cutting IT costs too. That's why over 37,000 companies have already made the move. And now by popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-the-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash squared. That's netsuite.com slash squared. netsuite.com slash squared. Yeah, yeah, I mean, there's a lot in that, obviously. Um, and we're going to, we're going to get to sort of some of these bigger themes, but, um, I wanted to take a second to, to loop around to the fact that when we think of, you know, trash waste, um, the first thing I think most people think of is, is the like physical items that we've been discussing, right? Like things that we throw away, but of course, big parts of the book that, you know, that, that you've written is also about the other kinds of waste that we don't even think about, you know, the, the sewage waste, the, the chemical wastes, the things that end up in our water, like all of these things are waste too. So I wondered if you could, um, reflect a bit on, um, whether there's a there's a hierarchy of waste is that a thing that exists like pe- are people more willing to look at certain types of waste than others um, that's a very good question i i don't fully know the answer what i would say is that quite often even the industry the, the industries that deal with these things and regulators they kind of see waste types as these separate issues so for example like people don't often loop in sewage and rubbish collection as the same problem. Ultimately, they are the same problem because what you're dealing with is a mass resource that we all produce, channeling it and processing it, collecting it, and trying and then kind of releasing it to the environment or doing something with it that isn't damaging. If you go, we, we even in the UK, for example, 
we see you, you can't say that sewage isn't a waste issue when our sewers are full of these fatbergs made of throwaway disposable wipes that then ca- causing sewage overflows. And all you need to do is go somewhere like India or Ghana or Malaysia or the Philippines or somewhere like that and see the amount of plastic you know, bottles and all this, all, all crisp packets that are clogging the sewers to, to understand that ultimately we're talking about these things that are all connected. Um, so yeah, and I'll say one more thing, and which I'm hoping that we'll get a chance to talk about. But the number one thing that I want people to take away in the hierarchy of waste, which is what you called it, is that the majority of all the waste that we create as human beings happens before our products get to us. This, for me, was like the revelation of the whole journey, was mm. we spend so much time washing our recycling and being told to you know, pack tote bags and take away uh, coffee cups which are all good things that we sh- that we should be doing. But by some estimates, 97% of our waste footprint is produced by industry before things ever get to us. You know, we, you eat the burger, you don't see all the rest of the carcass or all of the feces that that cow has produced and everything. You know, it's just an immense issue when you start to look at that. And I think reframing uh, the issue sometimes will, will involve like being honest about who the real producers of waste are in society rather than focusing on how you can get your crisp packets to Tesco's collection points or whatever it might be. Let, well, let's dig into that because if that's that's the central thing that you've realized, and I think that's quite an unusual perspective, right? Again, you're right. When we talk about waste, we, we take a very human-centric point of view in that moment, right? Like I do the wasting in in the action when I'm finished with the product. And to think of waste as having already occurred prior to reaching my hands is, is quite um, a different sort of reference point. Um, I think you actually raised this early on in the book through the plastic um, elements that you're talking about. Um, and I found that really interesting when you highlighted how um, post-World War II, it was, you know, plastic was this incredibly durable you know, substance and it was used for making all these things. And then it's something, it, something changes and we start bringing this, what was the phrase you used? Something like deliberate obsolescence or something like planned that. Planned obsolescence, yeah. There you go, um, planned obsolescence. Talk, talk to me about that. The disposable society that we have now is a really modern phenomenon. You know, for, for centuries, recycling would have been standard. Dickens wrote, wrote about it, for example. The Romans did it. The Mayans did it. Um, Disposable society, as we know, single-use plastics and things, really didn't come about until after the Second World War. And something really interesting happened then, which is it, you get, the 50s happen. There's this huge domestic consumer boom, and people are buying new appliances, and they're buying new cars, and they're buying TVs and things. And so, for example, one of my favorite things in the book is uh, people would have paper disposable products. So at one point, there was a company that tried to market a paper dress that you could literally throw away after one wear. There's another one that wanted to make paper curtains that you so that you could throw them away every time the fashion changed. You know, like, it's kind of a, a, incredible to think about. Uh, what happened as as a result of this kind of rampant glut of consumption that was happening in, in the time is that we didn't have the infrastructure to deal with it, and particularly in America, but all over the all over the world, you started to have this gigantic trash problem building up. Now, one of the things that happened is that people's started turning to their governments and legislators and said, okay, we've got to do something about this. So in return, a lot of the big corporate interests, the packaging companies um, particularly, 
formed a a group now relatively famous environmental circles called Keep America Beautiful, and there this was an action group. And one of the things that they did incredibly effectively was they campaigned, uh, they built up a campaign, and the focus of this campaign was to convince everyone that the real villain was litterbugs. It was litterers. It was people throwing things away in the you know in the park and the hedges without putting them in the bin. And there were some very famous adverts and things around this. Uh, what came out of that later on was this idea of recycling as an individual responsibility, something that was on us, so that the responsibility wasn't on the people who were just churning out billions and billions and billions of plastic bottles every year, but it was on the on it was you know we were buying it so it's the consumer's fault for to having to do this, which is you know not the way it's treated in many other industries. You wouldn't say that about a mining company or a petrochemical company or whatever. But it's a tremendously successful framing device. And so everything that we have now in our modern waste system has kind of come from that point. And we see it now in the way that we, dis- in the way that we discuss waste and these issues. What's been interesting in the last few years is that we're starting to see that turn on its head a bit. There's, there's new discussions around producer responsibility, there's legislation coming in. There's been various bans of, of single-use um, plastic products, even since I've started the book. There's a discussion going on at the UN right now about a plastics convention. So it's been amazing to see how that's been changing, and hopefully a realization is is happening. But the you know the, the marketing uh, and, and the, the lobbying groups are fearsome, and sometimes it, it can be hard to kind of combat that narrative. Well, I mean... I yes, obviously it's hard to combat these things. Um, I feel like it feels like a ridiculous thing to say in this moment, considering you've sat down and written a book on this thing. But um, you know, obviously that's your action in this moment, getting people to think about it. Is there anything that you you would um, encourage readers or listeners to do to try and engage more on on this sort of subject and? How do you how do you square that circle, as it were, between what what you can do as an individual and wanting to sort of, you know, shift the onus to the to the waste, you know, that is occurred, incurred, I should say, prior to items reaching your hands? Like, how do we even go about that? You know, this is a a really interesting challenge, uh, and you you won't. Be the, you're, you're certainly not the first person to kind of ask this question of me, and it's, it's something I kind of go back and forth on. Uh, because you're right; like we need we need to be able to make action as individuals. There's also things that we need to do as in society, and lobbying and voting and all those kind of big picture solutions. So you know, I'm not going to tell everyone to start carrying around a reusable water bottle and all that kind of stuff, which you should do. The kind of people who are going to be listening to this chat are probably doing that already. Something that I think is not talked about enough is that the individual decisions that people take that are most impactful are not when you're at the supermarket. Most of the time, they're what people do in the workplace. So my my dream mm. for this is not for everyone to suddenly start carrying around you know, refillables, but to say, okay, well, when I go into work and I'm making a big procurement decision, or I'm making a design design decision, or I'm an architect working at this company, is to be thinking about the waste from the outset and in the decisions you're making. Because the people who are buyers for big companies, or the people who are architects, or whatever you're doing in your walk of life, the, the decisions you make in your midweek meeting are 10 times more valuable than they are 
whether which bin you decide to put your recycling in at the, at, at the end of the day. So if we can reframe that as like a much bigger question and make people feel empowered to to change this, I think we're going to have a lot more success in moving the needle than if we just focus on what we're all doing on it as individuals at home. That's a really great practical piece of advice, actually. And I think, you know, it's really important also in these conversations to keep it sort of pragmatic and and have some sense of hope. So that's something that I felt also came through in your book that somehow, despite the fact we were discussing or, well, I was reading it, so we weren't discussing it, but it felt like we were, um, you know, despite the fact we're, you know, thinking about this incredibly uncomfortable you know, gross subject at times, being able to feel like you can do something about it and that there is hope is so critical. So things like that, you know, telling people to remember that, you know, the actions, their their actions in the workplace have, have potential impacts as well is, is a really um, useful thing, I think, to to keep people engaged. I think it's it's something that as, as well, because when you say to people, one, I, I'll, a spoiler, Something that we talk that I discuss at the end of the book, and I think we should we should all be thinking about is buying less stuff that you don't need, but buying better stuff. You know, buy stuff that's better, that's well made, it's going to last a longer time. And you know, I talk about my journey, which is learning to repair things and fix things, which seems very old fashioned. You know, like people say, oh, that's super obvious. And if you know, there's this argument that it might be regressive, or maybe it's not good for economic growth. Or all these, these, you get these kind of answers, and to them I say, well, studies have shown that recycling creates seventy jobs for every one created by landfilling or incinerating the things that we throw away, and creating economics of around repair. So, for example, not many people understand that one of the big drivers of economic growth in South China, which has become the tech capital of the world was the fact that for decades they received all of our e-waste and were doing electronics recycling. So you had a generation of electronics entrepreneurs with all these and um, uh, this incredible skill base and all this raw material, and that's turned out pretty well for them. So mm. I, I would say that it's obviously the, the, the issues are horrendous and going on those landfills and things, uh, I wouldn't recommend it to most people. But I do think it's important that we frame this as, and we see the opportunities and the ways that we can enact positive change. I find it actually quite interesting. You mentioned uh, in a few places this idea of, you know, um, the sort of skill and number of people involved in the production of any given item in our modern world, right? Like gone are the days of one person knowing how to make an item from beginning to end. And I quite like the, the, the sort of core of what you just said there, which is if you try and fix something, you'll come to appreciate that. You'll see those invisible, countless invisible hands, I think was the phrase you used in the book. But also I think it means that you, one can engage more uh, in, a, in a very present way with what the items we have. I mean, how many of us know anything about half of the items that we use? I don't know what is in any of them, where any of the bits came from or anything like that. And I, yeah, I think that there's something really quite empowering again in that sort of well, try and fix it or learn learn how to fix it or how to use it. Um, something else actually as well, just to 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 loop loop around to that as well, because again, we've talked a lot about sort of uh, physical items, is is water, right? I feel like water is a reoccurring theme in the book because 
um, recycling is water heavy or um, there's a high water cost, I should say. And water waste is, is also an issue and finding clean water is becoming increasingly difficult. And of course, water is a major pathway into the human body via other, other sources, of course. Um, and there's some pretty terrifying facts that you mentioned in the book about, you know, microplastics in placentas that find their way in and things like that, which is just terrifying beyond words, really. But talk, talk to me about water for a second here. So how, what do we do? What do we do about water? How are you thinking about water having finished writing this book? It's funny because there was actually an entire chapter about water that I went to California and reported during the drought that didn't make it into the book because there was just too much material there. Uh, but yeah, so one of the things that I write about, and particularly when I'm talking about, you, know, there's, you mentioned earlier, but one of the things that I tried to grapple with when we think about waste is toxic waste. And toxic waste now is that there are chemicals it's, you know, our, our entire world is suffused in, in chemicals of variable and sometimes unknown, unknown toxicity. And as you say, water is a primary way that gets into our body. Um, I'm kind of slightly obsessive about the, the, these 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 things mm -hmm. uh, now, um, to the point that I very nearly got uh, bought a shower from Copenhagen that is modelled on one they use on the space station, which recirculates grey water. Uh, so. Mm -hmm. I think we should all be pee cycling. And if you don't know what pee cycling is, it's uh, where they collect the urine so that they can use the phosphorus they're in uh, as an effective fertilizer. Uh, so, yeah, I, th I think from my perspective, the biggest thing for everyone in the UK when it comes to water at the moment is the sewage system and the sewage problem that is despoiling a lot of our rivers and beaches. That comes down to a systemic lack of infrastructure, lack of investment in our infrastructure. Again, it's out of sight, it's out of mind. It's an easy thing to cut when you're not paying attention to it. The Environment Agency over the last decade has been gutted by lack of funding. One of the side effects of that is that the massive growth of industrial farms, which produce a gigantic amount of waste, uh, is that many of them aren't really plugged into any kind of sewage treatment. And so they've been flooding it into the rivers. And our sewers are ill-equipped to deal with the volume from climate change. So they're flooding into the rivers. And what will end up happening is that you know it, it all circles back uh, to, okay, well, then you're spending an awful lot of money trying to process drinking water and, uh, and those kind of questions. The thing that didn't make it into the book uh, which I would love to write about and may do at some point, is I went to California, where which has been a state in the US that's been afflicted by tremendous drought over several decades that appears to be worsening. And there they are building a pilot plant for grey water recycling. So that is taking your the stuff that goes through the toilet, cleaning it very intensively with the most modern methods, uh, bombarding it with light and passing it through all sorts of filters, and then eventually using that uh, as currently irrigation water, but ultimately would be for drinking water. Now, that is uncomfortable for some people, the idea that you're drinking your urine, but it's going to be a reality for most of the world at some point. And there are hugely water-stressed regions, whether that's South India, places across the Middle East and Africa, or places like California, where grey water recycling and black water recycling is going to be a tremendously important part of of what we're getting to grips with and, and a tremendously part, important part of the future. So that's me waffling. Uh, but, <laughs> but, but yeah, water, let's all, let's all talk about water waste instead of plastic bottles. 
<laughs> I mean, there's just, there's multiple elements to this thing. I mean, I think also, as, as I mentioned, I'm a biologist, right? So in some senses, yes, all water is water waste anyway, right? Like every, every drop of water you drink has already passed through countless generations worth of, you know, God knows what. So, um, it's, it's almost to do with the, the perception that we have of the water more so than anything, right? Like I, I the think, psychology of it. I think this is true, but, but, you know, one of the things that I was kind of exploring with the book is, is when you, when you talk about waste, the ideal people have this kind of pastoral idea because in nature, nothing is wasted in nature, you know, a piece of fruit drops from the tree onto the ground it turns into mulch, it feeds the tree, and you have this kind of perfect closed loop, which is the big, the big thing in waste is circularity and closed loop. That requires us living in a world which doesn't have the masses of toxic chemicals and things that we're pumping out into it all the time. It's very difficult to talk about the purity of drinking water without talking about the fact that, you know, for in America, they're pumped full of PSAs, which are incredibly carcinogenic chemicals that have flooded, industrial chemicals that have kind of flooded our, our water supply. We could talk about BPA, we could talk about many other things. When we talk about compostable plastics, for example, which are its own thing, I don't have time to go into it here unless you want me to, but you can't return plastics to the earth unless we know that they're going to be nourishing it and neutral, and instead they're not doing that, they're leaving microplastics everywhere. So I think when we're talking about circularity, we kind of also need to talk about the realities of the system that we've built and deal with some of those underlying issues around toxicity and industrial effluent and those kind of problems that are kind of a bit of a barrier at the moment from us to having a truly circular system. I wonder, that that really got me thinking when you were saying that, I wonder how much of our perception of the fact that, you know, if you put something out to nature, nature will take care of it, right? Nature does does the nature is the ultimate recycler, and so then maybe that's that's part of the this idea that if you just put it out to nature, it will eventually just disappear, and nature will do the job for us. And actually, you know, I, I you know the message that we're getting here is that's not the case because we are taking things from nature, manipulating them in ways in which it's not possible for nature to just break them down and deal with them as it would do its own natural products, right? Um, so we kind of are responsible for generating and producing systems that can handle our own waste ourselves. Yeah, nature has its limits. You know, Nature, nature doesn't know how to deal with processed uranium, if, yeah, <laughs> for exactly. example. Nature doesn't, you know, the, nature doesn't love to clean up an oil spill, as we've seen. So there are, there are certain limits to, to circularity and a, and a responsibility we all have to, to be honest about that and come up with solutions that feel uh, robust. Yeah, there's so many things here. I think the last thing that we probably have time to touch upon was something that that I, I mean, there were so many things in the book, obviously, that we could we could discuss at this point in time. But I think the last thing I think it would be fun to, to take a moment to discuss is this idea that... Um, our waste is a reflection of how we live, right? And you basically, you told us a few things um, within the book about how archaeologists use it to reflect on bygone times and piece together how people have lived. And and that for me really made me stop and think for a minute and be like, gosh, I wonder what people will think in the future of, of us and what is this moment here? And for me, at least, it connected to this this other theme that we've discussed, which is 
um, you know, this looking away out of sight, out of mind, disgustingness thing. And, and I wonder, yeah, I wonder what you think we, we future, the future generations will think when they look back upon our current generation and it's called the Anthropocene, isn't it? I heard something awful about how apparently it's going to be mostly chicken bones or something like that. Is that correct for a start? And yeah, what are your thoughts currently on that? It's funny. At the weekend, my daughter uh, went to a birthday party and came back with one of those bags full of plastic tat, which you get from kids' birthday parties, which could just give me the heebie-jeebies. And she had like in it what, what I can only describe as a kazoo, you know, one of those really annoying whistles that sounds like you're going hunting duck or something. And, and I have to say, there was a part of me that like thought about exactly what you're talking about, which is, you know, when you when you bury those and over millennia of years and they're kind of digging them up, there's a joke in archaeology circles that whenever archaeologists don't understand what something's for, they'll say it's for a ritual. It's like ritual, you know, whatever. And I'm like, 10,000 years from now, people are going to be digging up all this plastic crap and being like, oh, this, what, what ritual was this for? But yeah, you're, you're right. The, the most humbling experience possibly of, of, of my whole journey was i went to the essex coast at the end of my reporting to see a landfill the landfills there um historic landfills are eroding and spilling into the river thames at the mouth of the thames as many many examples of this all over the world now because we had this idea that landfills were these closed systems that were kind of kind of benignly stay there forever but obviously the world doesn't work like that um, and so you can see layers of garbage from decades ago, like like strata in the beach, in the beachhead. And there was amazing like paisley clothes from the 60s and stuff. And I pulled out a, paper, a piece of newspaper that was still perfectly legible with a cartoon on it, which had a picture of Lloyd George in it. So we're guessing it was like some like you know, black and white. So it was like probably 30s or that kind of era. And you had this incredible sense of the responsibility of everything we do and, and the longevity of everything we do, right? Like the things that we pump out now are not just us to deal with. Rebecca Altman, who is a, a wonderful environmental writer and, and chemist, has this idea. She calls she calls climate change time bombing the future. You know, like you're you're doing all of this stuff now and having having this horrendous effect on people down the line. And waste kind of feels like that sometimes. Like you see things. We would pick up bottles from the eight, like of like bottles of drinks from the 80s and people would be like oh yeah i remember like throwing stuff like that away and we're like well was it this one you know it's <laughs> and the answer is maybe because this so you know are, this country has thousands of historic landfills and those that that stuff is still around so i think when we talk about waste as this issue rather than thinking about we, you know, disposable. What is disposable? Disposable means it's disposable for you. It means that it's out of your sight for a moment. But often, those that thing might live for another thousand years. You know, plastic doesn't. A lot of plastics just don't degrade in the way that you would think. You know, there's things around for four or five hundred years. Uh, like is is one current estimate. Even if it doesn't, it's going to break down in microplastics, which might might be around for who knows how long. So when you start to develop this kind of idea of deep time and the idea of the responsibility that comes with it. I think it gives us a real impetus to, to start dealing with this issue and start thinking about it in a, in a more meaningful way. Thanks for listening to Intelligence Squared. 
This episode was produced by me, Connor Boyle, with editing from Tom Hall. If you'd like to enjoy the full extended version right now, just head to intelligencesquared.com to sign up and become a member for just $4.99 a month. We'd also love to hear your feedback and what you think we should be talking about next. Send us an email or a voice note with your thoughts to podcasts at intelligencesquared.com. And if you'd like to hear more, attend some of our live events featuring some of the world's great minds. And once again, head over to intelligencesquared.com.